I read an article this week of a Navy officer uh, who went to the Military Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape School, or what they call the SEER School, the S-E-R-E School. And this school was a real-life crash course on how to respond when you're taken captive by the enemy. And it included the, a component of classroom training, and then there was a weekend of being in the cold, frozen Canadian woods, hunted, captured, tortured, and interrogated to see if you would break. And the author said that this program was designed to take potential POWs, and it was to teach them the six-article code of conduct. There's this code of conduct they want the, their enlisted men to know so that when they're taken captive, it dictates their actions. And it includes commitments like this. Article 1, I am an American fighting in the forces which guard my country and our way of life. I am prepared to give my life in their defense. Article 3, if I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means possible. I will make every effort to escape and aid others to escape. I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. And lastly, Article 6 says, I will never forget that I am an American fighting for freedom responsible for my actions, and dedicated to the principles which make my country free. I will trust in my God and in the United States of America. And so the officer went on to go and to describe this arduous testing of these six articles that they would endure, this mock torture. And he went on to write of him vomiting while having smoke blown in his face and passing out repeatedly only to be beaten up time and time again. And then at the end of the article, though, he had this really interesting paragraph where he said this. He said, but for me, Seer wasn't about the torture. It was about the realization that the pomp and ceremony, the pageantry and adulation that surround wearing a Navy officer's uniform was meaningless without the courage and commitment that underpinned them. And as we've worked through the book of First Peter, we find ourselves uh, three quarters of the way through this big passage on suffering. And we're in the middle of it, and starting at the beginning of chapter 3 and moving to the first part of chapter 4, Peter is talking about the world's response to our gospel, how we'll be met with hostility, and they'll be confused at our life, and they will be surprised that we don't live the way they live. And then next week, we get into one of the, uh, I don't know if rich is the right word to use to describe suffering, but we get into one of the heaviest passages in the Bible on how Christians suffer and how we should suffer like Christ suffered. It's a theology of suffering which is rich, but this week we find this weird passage which doesn't seem to fit with the narrative that Peter's been giving us in his book. And that's because in our passage tonight, in the midst of this big lesson on suffering, Peter's not going to talk about suffering. He's not going to mention what you can expect from those around you. He's going to talk about how you are to live. More importantly, he's going to talk about how you are to live even when you're in the midst of suffering. Because oftentimes we think, man, if we're suffering for Christ, that must be it. We're doing something right. Not that we should seek out suffering, but we should know that there's some consolation in suffering for Jesus. And we should say, if I'm suffering for Jesus, I don't need any more burdens on my life. I've got enough to handle. But what Peter's going to tell us tonight is that we should also seek holiness even amidst that suffering. There's a conduct for our life even in the hardest times. And what he's doing is he's going to provide for us a manifesto, a manifesto for the real world, 
a manifesto for a Christianity which gives us core values that will prove to be our guiding principles in times of war and in times of peace. And what Peter's fighting for tonight is the same thing the author of that article was fighting for at boot camp. He was fighting for the courage and commitment which underpins his identity. And so as you consider yourself a Christian, what is it that's at the bottom of your faith? What is the bedrock foundation when everything else is stripped away which endures? When suffering, sin, oppression, trial, and hardship come, what have you prepared yourself to respond with? What are you practiced to model in those moments? And perhaps you're not quite sure what Christianity is or what it's all about, but in looking at our own articles of conduct in this passage tonight, you're going to see the value and center of what Jesus has come to accomplish. And what we're going to see tonight is, is that a Christian life is underpinned by right thoughts about man, right thoughts about others, and right thoughts about God. So let's pray and ask God to be gracious to us tonight. Um, Lord, we need your word uh, if we want anything to happen. And even as this sermon will go to show, we need your word because we are weak. We need your grace because we're human. And Lord, may this passage uh, strengthen us, make us pillar, give us pillars in our life that when we are pressed, we will not cave. That when we are squeezed, what comes out will be glorifying to you and God honoring to those around us. Lord, we will experience many things in this life, but you, we, will, we are also called to experience the gospel in this life. So I pray that the gospel makes our experiences bearable and our experiences make the gospel beautiful. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So if you remember two weeks ago, uh, last week we talked about projects, so two weeks ago we were in 1 Peter. Peter ended his passage by reminding us where our lives will end up one day. Your life doesn't end when you die. Your life will end one day when you stand before God and you have to give an account to God for your life. And in that moment, you have to give an account as to the summary of what you've lived. Where you see the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the two options you'll face at the end of all time. Either the free gift of Jesus or the right wages of your sin. Sin or the cross, Jesus or nothing, life or death. And today he's going to continue a very similar emphasis by looking at the internal implication, eternal implications of this life. He opens this passage with this, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he keeps that eternal perspective. The end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And here's the first article of the Christian Manifesto. We see Article 1, my only hope is God. My only hope is God. And I mentioned tonight that a Christian worldview is underpinned by a right view of man. And here, eternity reminds us of hope. Because we know the end is near, Peter says, you must be mindful of how you live for the sake of your prayers. What does this mean? Peter's actually talked about prayer a lot in this book. What does it mean to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers? 
It means that we need to be reminded of man's desperate need for God's help. If we are Christians and we see what Jesus did on the cross, we realize that it was God who found us dead in sin. We realize it was God who sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. It was God who breathed life into our dead hearts. It was God who executed the miracle of salvation. It was God who gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. Why would we ever think that that same God is not needed for the rest of our life? If he has done the macro things, the huge things, the magnificent things in our life, don't we also need him for the small things in life? And what's interesting is in talking about, so here we have suffering on one side, suffering on the other side, and this brief pause where he talks about because things are coming to an end, live this way. Do you notice what Peter said? He didn't say, get strong legs and a resilient spirit for the end is coming. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. You see, a sober mind we just equate to not being drunk, which is part of the word sober, but also just means having a realistic mind, having accurate thoughts on oneself. A sober mind, a sober Tyler Valene realizes that I can't even win my fantasy football league on my own, let alone pursue holiness, resist sin, lead my family, evangelize the lost, or endure persecution and opposition on my own. But look at what Jesus says in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. With Jesus, we can do much. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. And when our culture likes to discuss things about self-help, they always use this thing called self-discovery. And they define self-discovery as this thing where we go either into a mountaintop or into a busy place, busy city, wherever like people in New York go to find self Where do people in New York go for self-discovery? A bodega. <laughs> when they go to a bodega for self-discovery, they, they, the, the, the storyline is they look inside themselves and they find the strength that was there all along, right? Insert every Disney movie ever. The strength was already there. Christianity is about self-discovery. It's just a different story. When Christianity tells us to look inside and we look soberly with open eyes, we discover that we are infinitely flawed and hopelessly weak without the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And see, it's interesting you get athletes and you get tele-celebrities touting verses like Philippians 3.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they apply it to life's greatest moments like winning the Super Bowl or, you know, climbing Everest. But a sober mind looks at verses like Philippians 3.13 through the lens, not of the magnificent, but through the mundane. I don't need Jesus' help to win a Super Bowl. I mean, I do. <laughs> but I need Jesus' help to love my wife. I need Jesus' help to not snap at my kids. I need Jesus' help to kill my lust. I need Jesus' help to give me confidence to read my Bible in public in the comments. I need Jesus' help to help people around me. You need Jesus' help to talk to your roommates about Jesus. And we understand that those are the magnificent things. Those are the things that Christ frees us to do. Those are the things that matter in eternity. 
You see, our only hope for the Christian life, your only hope for the whole Christian life is that we have a God with storehouses of infinite power who has chosen to turn a definite ear to you because he desires to help you. He desires to aid you. He desires to assist you. And this is the third time now in the book of 1 Peter where Peter has mentioned something that's kind of unique in terms of the biblical authors. I think Paul hints at it once, but Peter says three times in this book that we can do things where God will, will, where it will not hear our prayers. We can do things with, which frustrate our prayer life. Look back at 1 Peter 3, 7, where he says this, speaking to husbands. Here's your Valentine's Day tie-in if you want one. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then 1 Peter 3.12, look at uh, the response of God to the righteous and to the evil. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God hears the righteous and turns away from the evil. If you neglect your wife, God will turn away from you and your prayers will be hindered. Now again, for a third time, Peter mentions that we ought to exercise self-control and a sober mind for the sake of our prayers, for the benefit of your prayers. Now this brings into the bigger question, what does your prayer life look like? What kind of prayers do you pray? If your prayers were hindered, if your prayers were obstructed, if God turned his ear from you, would it really change anything? On the contrary, if God answered all of your prayers today, if all of your prayers were answered immediately, would you be a better Christian tomorrow? Or would you just be a more comfortable Christian tomorrow? You see, oftentimes our prayer exposes our priorities where instead of asking God to, in his mercy, transform us, we ask God to turn off the lights for us. We ask God to do things that are uncomfortable for us. We ask God to help me do well on my test. But if God answered your prayers, would you sin less? If God answered your prayers, would you be more active in pursuing holiness? If God answered your prayers, would it be easier to read the Bible with your friends, to love those around you? If God answered your prayers, would Jesus be more glorified? Maybe that's why we don't fear a hindrance of our prayers. See, what this text exposes is that none of us have a problem with our prayer life we all have a problem with sin. Our sin has produced an inflated view of ourself and a microscopic view of God. And if we pray little and we're intimidated little by the idea of our prayers not being heard, then we fail to understand our infinite weakness and God's powerful loving kindness to us. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you will not endure. Apart from God's grace, you will not survive when hardship and persecution come. Apart from God's grace, you will not thrive in the sunshine of God's peace. And this brings us to our next point. Article two of the Christian Manifesto is that my obligation 
is to love others. My obligation is to love others. So again, the context of this verse is important. Peter isn't talking about Christianity in a life of peace. This is this weird patch of green in the book of Peter where it's scorched earth everywhere else. And it's really easy to look at this and say, man, here's this great passage on spiritual disciplines that I should do to be a better Christian. But Peter's telling you to do this amidst some of the hardest circumstances you'll ever know in your life. But now, look at 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through the first part of 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So context of this passage is important because it subtly shifts our cultural thoughts on life. Though our culture loves to talk about love, we've had Valentine's Day, we love love, our culture does little to live it out. Though our culture worships the title of love, it does little in the service of love. Though it films love, sings love, and attempts to embody love, never has it been so far from mirroring love. It is a hollow and vain shell, but the Christian manifesto opposes that of cultures. See, Christian love is not, not about moral mimicking, but about self-sacrificial forgiving. Christian love is less about bucket list capping and more about other-oriented self-emptying. Christian love is less about every man for himself when things get hard and more about one man for everything else when things were impossible. You see, impressed by suffering and opposition and calamity, the natural heart of man is to cave into self-preservation. This is why we love movies, real-life movies, about heroes in historic events. Because it's so opposite the reaction that the majority of people have. Why do movie and superhero movies sell? Because it's contrary to the heart of man. When opposition comes, when hardship ensues, we don't rise up to another level. The majority of people fall and we cave and we seek self-preservation over anything else. But it's exactly this inversion of fight or flight in the Christian's life that makes Christian love truly Christian. You see, we don't internally cave to what's easier for us because Jesus didn't cave to what was easier for him. Jesus didn't come and die for those who were like him. He came and died for those who were hostile to him. Jesus didn't die for the sinless. He died for the sinners. And therefore, we can earnestly love those around us because we've been served with a greater love. And this verse where Peter gives it simply a reminder of something he told us earlier in the semester in 1 Peter 1, where he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Your salvation, the purity of God's salvation, the sin-killing, cross-exalting salvation, it makes us love earnestly, zealously. It makes us love offensively and pervasively. But the problem is, I've noticed something, specifically in the last three weeks. When Sarah is sick, it's easy for me to love her, right? 
I'm healthy. I'm able. When my kids are sick, uh, they're a little messier than Sarah. Uh, and so there's a little hesitation initially, but I still want to help them. Otherwise, it just looks bad. But three weeks ago, my whole family got sick. And there was not a thing further from my mind that I wanted to do than to serve them. I wanted them to serve me. I wanted them to help me. I wanted to be the center of their attention because I was afflicted. And sure, they were afflicted, but I'm afflicted. Help me. But did you see what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 9? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Serve one another without grumbling, without reservation, without the faintest desire for self-preservation. When you are squeezed, what Peter's asking, when you are squeezed, what is coming out of you? When you are oppressed, when sickness or hardship or suffering or persecution, which is the context of this book, comes into your life, what's going to be left? When worldly comforts and prestige are stripped away, what remains? For us, this could be a disheartening and frustrating question because we know we wouldn't have a lot left. Today was a long day for me, and I'm drained. <laughs> and yet, I'm not in a season of prolonged suffering. I'm of good health. My wife and kids love Jesus. I'm part of a healthy church. I get paid to preach Jesus openly on a college campus. We get so exhausted after a long day of work or tests. And oftentimes our love falls flat. But that's barely a challenge to the love of God. But you see, Peter wants to help us here. Because to really understand the obligation to love others, you have to go back to Article 1. My only hope is God. See, that's our only hope because we know circumstances get hard and we know we're going to get pressed and we know it's going to be taxing, but we also know that we have a hope which consumes our weakness. Look back at 1 Peter 4, 10 through the first part of 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, I don't like that they use oracles because it sounds mystical. It just means it's words of God. Speak as, as one who speaks words of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You see, before we answer the question of what comes out of us when we're pressed, we must ask ourselves the question of what is the gospel already put inside of us? You see, for the believer, what we have inside is something that circumstances, opposition, sickness, persecution, and suffering can never take away from us because it's exactly through Christ's persecution, Christ's suffering, Christ's opposition that it was given to us. You see, when we receive the gospel of salvation, we receive something which can be given away at any time and in any place. We've been given the greatest news the world has ever had. And that news is life to the lost, encouragement to the weak, and hope to the suffering. And because our God is so great, he has not only given us this gift, 
He has given us the gospel. You have received the word. You have given salvation. But God in his goodness has also given us gifts wherein we can give that away to place in ways that are natural for us. Look at Romans 12, verses 5 through 8. It says this. Get on the right page. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, in the same way, members of the military must be reminded of their position and purpose if they want to endure hardships in enemy territory, so too must we as Christians remember the position and purpose for which we have been saved. God has saved you and given you a gospel which purposes your life. And we can often get sidetracked on looking through lists of spiritual gifts like, which is mine, which is mine, which is mine. But Peter does a great job. He says, speaking and serving, find it in one of those. That's broad enough. God's given you something to do in all circumstances and in all times. You carry in your chest the gospel of God. That means you can live Christianly in all circumstances. That means when you are weak, the gospel is strong. When you are silenced, the gospel speaks louder. When you are crushed, defeated, struck down, the gospel preserves, endures, and inspires us to continue on. There's, there's, a, there's a debate amongst Christian artists right now. I don't like Christian music, but the debate is, what's greater? Sorry, Johnny. I like Christian worship music. Um, the debate is, what's better? Having a Christian with a high platform who doesn't make negative songs or sinful songs or songs which are crude or crass or pointless, but also who's not really sharing the gospel explicitly because they have this platform to influence versus a person who's driven to communicate beautifully in song the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an important debate. We have a platform and we have influence. And we have a gospel which is true. The only problem is a platform has saved no one. They can take away the platform, but they cannot take away our gospel. They can take away our microphone, but they cannot take away our words. Do your words represent this hope? You have something to give away in your language, in your interaction with your friends, in your jokes, in your laughter, and in your entertainment. Do your words represent the hope which will endure? The world can sap all of your physical strength. I feel it today. I'm tired. My body is aching. But the world can't sap the strength which God himself supplies, which is what Peter is talking about here. Does your service happen in that power? I think especially in Western countries, we are far too easily exhausted and we take that as a license to do nothing. But here we see that, that God himself has given us a strength to serve, to supply, and to motivate people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 
verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you. We feel the burden of the bookends of 1 Peter, of suffering as a response and suffering as a discipline. But in the middle, we have this beautiful blending of death and life because of what Christ has done for us. Let us love with this love, this imperishable, undefeatable love. Let us labor in a spirit which will not grow dim or vain regardless of what culture discusses. And this brings us to our last point tonight. Let's finish our passage. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, it's interesting. Our culture, any culture, provides its own articles of conduct. Depending on who you are, where you are, what part of the country you live in, there are competing motivations for your life. Competing ideologies as to what your true hope is. Competing influences as to what your obligation is either to yourself or to your society. And there are always, will always be endless rubrics for assessing how you met your goals in life. How do you weigh a life well lived? How do you weigh success? How do you weigh merit? But the beauty of the Christian manifesto is that its code of conduct and its articles provide us a goal which will never be shaken. And this is the final article tonight. Article three. My only goal is Jesus glorified. You see, when Peter begins this passage saying the end of all things is at hand, he uses two words which are kind of hard for us to understand in English because there's this many words in Greek to describe these words in English. And so he uses two words which are really important. The first is the word he uses for end, and it's telos. If any of you have taken intro to ethics, teleological ethics finds its root in this word. And telos is more than a time marker. It's not just the end is coming, as in the, 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 the finality of whatever it is, the movie or whatever. It's a purpose statement. It expresses a definite end, a culmination, a total conclusion. The end result and summation of all that precedes it. And then the, the word for all is, is pos. And pos is a word which means complete in regards to its entirety. It's not a portion of everything. It's not a larger portion of a smaller group. But everything in all of its entirety is seen collectively. So what this means is when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, what Peter is saying here is that the final goal of all history and all people is at hand. 
And then he begins to summarize what we are to do here. And the goal of this wonderful summary is that we are to hope in God and to love others so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. The weight of your life is God being glorified through Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, I was dialoguing with Johnny. I said I was going to hedge my bets here because I'm not a religious studies uh, master. But I don't think there's any other religion that promises that their God will be glorified in everything. In sorrow, in suffering, in hardship, in calamity, in martyrdom, in persecution, in, in apostasy, in sin, in glory, in repentance. And yet our God promises in everything to be glorified. You see, the commitment and courage which underforms or underpins the uniform of Christianity is the confidence that Christ will be glorified in all things, in all places, and for all of his people. You see, Jesus doesn't need you to live your best life now if you want to glorify Jesus. Jesus just needs you to see your need for God, to strive in his power to love others, and in so doing, Jesus will be glorified. You see, we can't control the outcome of our lives. We can't control the circumstances, the times, or the powers, but what you can control is what you hope in and what you love. That's what God's required of you. That brings us freedom. We don't have to be worried about everything going perfectly because it means regardless of what's going on in your life, you can live in a way where Jesus is glorified. That means the purpose of your life is always attainable because it's Jesus who gets the glory and it's Jesus who has the dominion, not us. So often our lives are sidetracked and, and they, 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 suffering quickly derails us because we think it's up to us to find glory. Life becomes this great glory grab. Or we think it's up to us to exercise dominion and to shape the narrative of our own task, task list, our own desired accomplishments, our own free time. But it's Jesus who controls both of these. It's Jesus who gets all glory and dominion and God will be glorified in Jesus Christ because it is exactly Jesus to whom all glory goes and to whom all powers do forever and ever. Amen. Here's the beauty of this text. You can do exactly what God has called you to do in this because Jesus has saved you, Jesus has gifted you, and Jesus is in control of everything. So often we think, man, there's only, like, I understand what I'm called to do, but what's reasonable? What Peter's saying here is in the midst of one of the most oppressive passages in all of Scripture, you can live a beautifully Christian, God-glorifying life. Because you see the value and beauty of Jesus. If you look at this passage, at what this passage calls you to do and find it as unreasonable, you need to repent. For you've been blinded. This is reasonable. If you look at this list and feel overwhelmed by the weight of it, then look to Jesus for your strength, for your confidence. You see, we have the wonderful ability to apply this text in a time of relative peace, but we must learn to apply this text now if we want to survive the real conflict which may come in our lives. Like a dedicated soldier, set your mind on the articles of faith, 
hope and God's glory in Jesus Christ. And you will be able to serve God, to love others, and to treasure the beauty of Christ in all and any circumstances. This is the goal of the Christian life. And on this side of death, this is the goal of your whole life. So let us take up arms and together pursue this with all of our effort in the grace of God and in his wise mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us our need. Um, Lord, if there's one thing we could take away from this text, may it be that we are weak and need your help. That we are so limited, but you are so infinite. That we are so feeble, but you are so strong. And God, I pray that in our lives as we view this tasks, these tasks, we, we understand a right picture of who we are and who you are. So we might live well, love others, and glorify Christ in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen.